This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, our focus returns to Mexico with cover-ups, corruption, and debate over the impact of migration. But first, Jim Singer has more about that story of cover-ups of human rights abuses and the rest of our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Thousands of protesters poured into the streets in Mexico City this week, angry at the Mexican government's investigation of 43 missing university students. Investigators for the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights issued their report on the case last week. These independent international investigators criticized the government and other forces for blocking their work on the case. The independent investigators have said various Mexican police forces and the Mexican military likely knew of the kidnapping of the students. Mexico's President Enrique Peña Nieto denied those criticisms and said the investigation was one of the most complete in Mexican history. The Mexican government has deployed a vast effort to obtain justice through a deep, transparent, and open investigation. Both the independent and official Mexican government investigations agree the students were arrested during protests staged in 2014. Police in the Mexican state of Guerrero then turned the students over to a drug gang. Mexico's attorney general says the gang killed the students and burned their bodies so no remains could be found. Independent investigators say forensic evidence does not support that explanation for the disappearance of the students. We'll have more on this case later on this program. Opposition groups in Venezuela moved this week to shorten the term of President Nicolas Maduro with mixed results. A coalition of parties opposing the socialist president say they have collected 600,000 signatures on a petition for the president's recall. The opposition groups plan to submit the signatures next week, and if verified, it could mean voters would get to decide if Maduro stays in office. He has three years left on his term. Also this week, Venezuela's Supreme Court again came to the aid of the embattled president. The court ruled that a constitutional amendment passed by the National Assembly could not be applied to Maduro. The amendment would shorten the term in office of presidents in Venezuela to four years rather than the current six years. Opposition groups now control the National Assembly for the first time in 17 years. One of the reasons Venezuelans might want to recall President Maduro is he's ordered a shorter work week. Now, usually people are all in favor of less work. But Venezuelans say the official shortened work week is due to economic mismanagement. Government workers in Venezuela are now working a two-day week. The government says that will save energy and money. Venezuela's government is facing many shortages due to its dependence on oil revenues, which have dropped with the price of oil. Some economic experts say inflation is near 500 percent in the country. And news also came this week that the government is running out of funds to print new money, which is needed because the bolivar, the official currency, is worth less and less each day. The Summer Games in Rio are less than 100 days away, and Brazil's representatives traveled to Greece this week to officially accept the Olympic flame for its long trip to the other hemisphere. The organizers of the Games planned for the torch to visit 300 different cities in Brazil before it travels to Rio de Janeiro. 
these Olympic Games will be the first ones to be staged in South America. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jim Singer. Thanks, Jim. As Jim told us earlier, controversy against World in Mexico regarding the case of 43 university students from Ayatzinapa. Parents of the students again organized protests and thousands showed their support for the parents and their anger at the Mexican government. Anger due to what independent investigators believe is a cover-up. Investigators for the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights say one of their new theories of the case is that the students had hijacked buses as part of a protest in Guerrero in 2014. But little did the students know the buses may have been hauling a shipment of heroin. This is why investigators believe that when corrupt police captured the students, they turned them over to a drug gang for punishment. But those investigators say the Mexican government worked to keep them from proving their case by keeping them from interviewing members of the military and other top officials. We turn to Shannon O'Neill at the Council on Foreign Relations for her analysis. She's the author of Two Nations Indivisible, Mexico, the United States, and the Road Ahead. She joined us via Skype from New York City. No, Mexico has had ongoing and systematic challenges in defending human rights. And so whether it's the military and detentions and, and perhaps disappearing of, of particular individuals in, in various parts of the country, whether it's the police forces, law enforcement more generally, extracting confessions through, confessions through torture, this has been a serious issue for Mexico. We have seen over the last several years a steps towards professionalizing Mexico's police forces and human rights have been part of that conversation along the way, but as we've seen in many recent reports that have been released, they haven't moved as quickly as everyone would want. Well, let's talk about recent reports. We have this most recent report about the missing students from Ayatzinapa in, in Guerrero State. Um, that there has been an international panel trying to find out what really happened to the students, what sort of collusion was there between police, perhaps military, others in their disappearance, and the report last week that they have been um, what they feel is a systematic cover-up that, and, and harassment of their investigators. So this panel from the Inter-American um, Commission on Human Rights was brought in after the students disappeared now uh, in the fall of 2014, this panel was brought in and, and first by the parents and by others in the community, but welcomed by the Mexican government at the time. They've gone through very systematic investigations, bringing in experts from all over the world that have expertise in forensic DNA and in fires and other things to test the various theories that were put out by the Mexican government. and. The earlier preliminary report and then the final report that just came out this last week show huge inconsistencies and real questions about the official storyline of what could have happened. And the Mexican government in, in response, and, and I think uh, unfortunately has chosen to deny a lot of this, but also it looks like tarnished some of those that participated. So. It was an opportunity, I think, for Mexico to bring in worldwide experts and, and really listen to them and use it as a test case for best practices and really going after human rights challenges and, and perhaps, you know, forced disappearances and the like. And I think they've lost, lost that opportunity here by their reaction. And frankly, in that really lost the respect of an international community that could have helped them in improving human rights issues. So what do you think that this particular case points to? It, it has, the, as you point out, 
Um, some statistics say that there are more than 100,000 people missing and killed as part of the drug war in Mexico. Some totals go to 125,000. Um, th- those are very saddening statistics. Um, and this particular case has proved to be the case that has been at the head of the zeitgeist when we talk about human rights in Mexico. It, it has proved to be the case that brings people out in the streets to protest and really to make the Peña Nieto administration extremely unpopular. It has. I mean, this case, along with some other corruption scandals that, that have been brewing, have decimated his public approval ratings. And we saw, you look back, you remember the first two years of his term, he passed all these ambitious economic reforms, an energy reform, a financial reform, an education reform, a telecommunications reform, and several as a tax reform. And many of those people thought, you know, this is changing Mexico. It's putting it on the right path, and we're moving towards a much more modern, productive Mexico and a more inclusive one. And this has really been the Achilles heel of the government, the both this particular case, the human rights abuses, but corruption more generally. And it's questioned, I think, in the eyes of much of Mexico's society, is there really a change happening in Mexico? Yes, we're seeing some changes on the economic side and things that, in my view, will lead Mexico to a much better place. I think these economic reforms will make Mexico more open, more competitive, and more inclusive for the larger population. But you have to deal with this other side, which is the societal side, which is human rights, and which is, frankly, the rule of law. And that is an area where I don't think this government has made as much progress, or some would argue, any progress. Part of the title of your book is The Road Ahead. Did you see these problems of human rights um, in your book? This has been a challenge for Mexico for a long time, and, and it's varied over its history. If you look back under the, the pre-days when it was an authoritarian regime, we saw repression. We saw you know, a famous murdering of students in 1968, um, and then also through the 1970s, the disappearance of leftist individuals and others, a real repression, even though the pre, compared to some other authoritarian regimes, had a bit of a lighter hand than, than say, those in Argentina or Chile or other countries under the military dictatorships, but it is evolving over time. And one one thing that's happening now, which is, you know, the a glass half full or perhaps a silver lining is we're hearing about these things, right? If you went back to the 70s or 80s, the press was controlled. There weren't freedom of information, actually. We weren't able to really get access to these things, nor was the social media, the other tools that we have today to allow a broader public, both in Mexico and internationally, to know about what's happening. So I think that is a good change in Mexico, but it just means that we know about what's happening, but it doesn't mean some of the underlying factors have changed the way they should. And and so let's talk about um, the past relative to the present. Uh, The irony in this particular case in Guerrero is that those students, those missing 43 students, were actually um, holding a protest to honor the the students who were killed in the massacre in 1968. And so now you actually have uh, two events that, that resonate through this history of poor hu- human rights in Mexico. And so I'm, I, I wonder what you think specifically about this case of the missing students. Do you think it will continue to be the Achilles heel of the Peña Nieto administration? Given the discrepancy between the official positions and then what's come out in sort of the international reports, I think it will continue because there's huge differences there. And, and 
those that aren't convinced by the official story, which are a large percentage of the population, uh, are going to continue to believe not only is the government perhaps incapable of handling and investigating these kinds of cases, but it seems unwilling to investigate that. So I do think this will be a continuing factor, and it's playing out in the international realm. In fact, you know, many of the presidential candidates have mentioned this or other cases in there, and the U.S. presidential candidates have mentioned these cases. So this is an issue, and it will continue to be a big issue in U.S.-Mexico bilateral relations. So as we look toward our next president and, and the continuation of Peña Nieto, but in 2018, their next president, this is an issue, right? We will continue to work together on security issues, but how do you deal with the human rights issue here? And that has always been a tension between the two countries, and, and we'll continue. What are your thoughts about these reports from the International Commission looking at this about collusion um, that they've accused members of both state and federal police of, of being involved in this disappearance of these students? You know, overall, I've seen several reports by Human Rights Watch, by others that have looked at particular cases, not just in Guerrero, but in other parts of Mexico. And there are examples, and it seems significant evidence, that there has been, in other places, collusion between state, federal, military forces um, that have denied people's human rights. Many of these, you know, they're one-off cases, they're, but there are dozens of cases that have been investigated where it seems there's some credible evidence. So I... I'm not part of the commission. I haven't seen the, the evidence that was presented to them in this particular case, but there does seem to be a trend, or there do seem to be other examples of something similar happening throughout Mexico. And the UN has come out and said, uh, through their own reporting, that there has some systematic human rights abuses involving these forces. So I, I do think this wouldn't be an anomaly given those that report on these issues. Would you agree to characterize these as extrajudicial killings that have gone out of control as part of the drug war, or do you see it differently? You know, Guerrero, if you look at its history over 100 years, is a very difficult, very lawless place. Um, and it has been that for, for decades and decades. And so, you know, many of the theories about what happened, perhaps, that are not the government theories, but other theories are that perhaps these buses were carrying drugs, they are carrying heroin or, or elsewhere, and these students hijacked the wrong bus, and, and so, that got them involved. That's one theory that's out there, you know, where the evidence is that that's in someone else's hands. So it could be tied to that, but it is also a place where we see extrajudicial killings happening often. In fact, as they went to look for the bodies of these 43 students, they discovered many other mass graves and no one seems to be investigating what happened to those people. So I think it is telling that particularly in the state and there's other areas of, of Mexico that suffer similar lawlessness, but Guerrero is a very troubled place and has been for a long time. You noted before our discussion that, that the reason I originally rang you up was to, to talk about the Panama Papers and Mexico's connection to that, that, that again raised the issue of not necessarily human rights, but corruption. And corruption is also attached to these um, disappearance cases, the idea that police or federal forces may be, be part or connected to drug gangs. Um, I, I wonder what you think about um, the reaction in Mexico to the Panama Papers. It brought up some uncomfortable remembrances for President Peña Nieto. Yes, yeah, so the release of the Panama Papers, the, you know, many countries have not been immune, and, and you see a lot of Europeans and, and Russians and the like on there, but there were many Mexicans, too. There were a few dozen Mexicans that were there, 
uh, fewer politicians than many would have expected. The Brazilians had a lot of politicians. The Mexicans, it was fewer politicians, but um, many well-known uh, private sector people, a few people in entertainment and the like that had uh, shell companies that, that were named within that, including the ex head of Pemex was named in there, as well as uh, a favored government contractor, the one that held the deed on both the finance minister as well as the first lady's houses um, that were part of the Casablanca scandal and the like. So it has opened up again that issue, but the issue of corruption actually has been pretty front and center in Mexico for several months now. We've seen a moving forward. So last year there was a new national anti-corruption system that was passed in the Congress, and right now they're actually negotiating the the rules for that. Thank you so much. Shannon O'Neill joining us today on Latin Pulse via Skype from New York City. She's with the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of Two Nations Indivisible, Mexico, the United States, and the Road Ahead. Thank you so much for being our guest. Great. Nice to be here. We'll be hearing more from that interview with Shannon O'Neill later this spring. Coming up, the economics of immigration and how it has affected the presidential campaign in the U.S. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Earlier this year, the Mexican government released some surprising economic news. Remittances from Mexicans in the U.S. now surpassed oil in their importance to the Mexican economy. Mexicans in the United States sent home almost $25 billion last year, and the amount continues to grow. We asked Manuel Orozco to help us analyze this economic shift. Orozco is with the Inter-American Dialogue, and he's the author of Centro America in la Mera, Central America in the Lens. He joined us via Skype from San Jose, Costa Rica. When you ask about the importance of remittances, all you have to look is the, uh, the political landscape in the United States and the campaigning, where remittances have become one of the issues of the political debate for at least one of the candidates for a nomination into the Republican Party. And it tells you how uh, significant this issue is even for the United States uh, key leaders. The, the fact is the following. There are over 10 million Mexican immigrants in the United States. They represent over 95% of all Mexican immigrants living abroad. And about half of them, or six million, send somewhere around more than $20 billion in remittances. Last year, the amount of money they sent was $24 billion, and it was an increase over uh, 4%, almost 5%, and it's equal to 2% of GDP. But what, what's critically important about this flow is the following. One is that these are basically earnings of immigrants in the United States that are sent back home that come to support over 6 million households in Mexico. That's a significant number uh, in a country of 100 million people. Um, we're talking about nearly 20% of Mexican households that receive remittances. 
the large majority of these households are located in areas that are uh, connected to the rural economy of Mexico. Um, and these are earnings that represent basically over 20% of the personal income of an immigrant. Um, the significance of it is far greater than we can imagine because it, basically it, the, the flow of money um, at the household level comes to represent over 50% of the total income in the household. So they basically double the household's income uh, through remittances. Immigrants from Mexico sent about $300 a month, uh, at least 14 times a year. They send basically uh, more than once a month uh, money. And they help a household of four in communities like uh, cities in Oaxaca, in Guanajuato, um, even places that did not have large migration flows like uh, Chiapas. So I'm wondering, you mentioned the rhetoric that is surrounding remittances that's coming from the Trump campaign in the United States uh, as Donald Trump pursues the Republican nomination. And there has been um, quite a bit of discussion about whether he will be able to make good on these promises or not, promises to shut off the flow of remittances until uh, a wall is built and financed by the Mexican government. Um, aside from whether that is a, a real possibility, um, my question is more to the possibility of shutting off the flow of remittances uh, because it comes from so many different sources, as you've mentioned, uh, millions of people sending different um, wire transfers of money. Is that really a possibility? No, it's not. It's, it's, uh, it's pure politicking uh, that Mr. Trump has used as a way to draw attention. Uh, the, the reality is that a politician like Donald Trump uh, is one of the most pragmatic individuals in the in the current uh, political arena. The, of all the candidates that you have in front of you, this is the most pragmatic of all. Uh, it's not an ideologue, it's an individual that basically has a very clear strategy. He's prepared to negotiate its political position by using a rhetoric that allows him to get to power. One of those sources of the rhetoric includes uh, an anti-immigrant bashing. At the end of the day, once he's in power, if he were to be, um, he would be a person that will not be prepared uh, to do this type of, uh, to meet his his promises. And that, that from the, let's say, because of his pragmatism, on the legal standpoint, it is uh, quite difficult to perform the changes that he's trying to make. On the one hand, First, at this point in time, his advisors are ill-equipped. The recommendations they made in a memo they submitted to the world, to the Washington Post, for example, are highly inaccurate. They mention legislation that actually doesn't exist. Um, in the Code of Federal Regulations, for example, he cites a number that is not present in the Patriot Act or in the CFR. Um, so they, they are really not even aware of the fundamentals on how to make policy. Second of all, is that the idea of preventing people from sending money by taxing it and requiring legislation, requiring uh, proof of identification of legal status, uh, 
through the private sector is something that is not possible because it's not legally allowed. The, the right to require um, a person's legal status is basically provided only to the federal government and it's a jurisdiction that is sacrosanct. Therefore, you cannot expect a company like Western Union, for example, to ask uh, you as an individual for your proof of citizenship or legal status in the United States. So that in itself will require a significant uh, lobbying to change a law that has been basically the cornerstone of the United States uh, political culture and institutions. Then you have other challenges that are much more practical, and that is that it is very difficult to demonstrate a person's legal status in cases of uh, communities, for example, that don't have identity, uh, identification. Um, even there are many Americans who still, you know, they perform businesses and they live in a cash-based economy, and it's not a negligible population. It might be even higher than the number of Mexicans. Um, and then you have another important issue, and that is that what Trump is proposing is actually so loosely defined that it includes non-Mexican immigrants. And we are a country of over 42 million immigrants in the United States, 32, 33 million of which sent money to the relatives in amounts that go to at least $120 billion every year. And um, that will have severe implications to a number of people. So the, the political issues behind it are just way too much, too high, too uh, taxing in, in the impact that will have in any type of effort that will basically damage his effort on every, any other issue that he will be interested in performing um, as a president, if he were to become one. What this rhetoric points out, though, is how important and how big the industry around the movement of remittances has become in the United States and also in Latin America. Well, what, they, what, they, what it's pointing out, in fact, is how important Mexico and Latin America are to the United States. And it's an issue that we're still failing to recognize, but that Donald Trump, in his astute political um, strategy, is capitalizing on. And that is, he understands how important the, to the United States Mexico is and how important is Mexico to the United States. That there is a very strong trading relationship, but also a bilateral relationship that goes beyond trade. And it includes um, a demand for foreign labor, a supply of it from the Mexican side, but also a globally integrated U.S. economy with a country like Mexico. And it points out that when it comes to some challenges, like, for example, um, threats that may come through the border, Mexico is a key partner in defining solutions to that problem. The issue is that the approach that Mr. Trump has taken is basically one that is needing more attention, but it's not the one that he will follow. And again, this is, this is a, a, an issue that all candidates have missed. That is that the United States is an economy and a society that today is far more globally integrated than at any other point in time. 
we are not only the country that basically has created globalization or has been one of the pioneers in bringing globalization to the world, but also the country whose economy depends on the global economy. And migration, for example, is one of the key factors defining that. And so the United States really uh, has come across as, as, as a key player in this, in this relationship to Mexico. Thank you so much, Manuel Orozco of the Inter-American Dialogue and the author of the new book, Central America in La Mera, joining us via Skype from San Jose, Costa Rica on Latin Pulse. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you very much. We'll be hearing more from that interview with Manuel Orozco next week. Thanks for joining us this week. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot org. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. Music